Still in your 
eyes of our heart to see you so we never will forget you never fail we worship you this morning God you are the God who will not lie. And no matter what we see, no matter what we hear, we choose today to believe your word and to release all fear, all doubt, to know that you are in control, that we may not understand your ways are so much higher than our ways. So we surrender this morning, we lean on you, and we look forward to seeing the miracles that only you can do, God. We praise you and worship you today. Thank you, thank you for who you are. I guess I should turn my mic on. <laughs> it's always a, a little bit of a chore trying to wheel the pulpit out. I know the, uh, the pulpit's old school, but... Uh, I guess you could just say I'm old school, so it's always worth wheeling the pulpit out for me. I like it. Yeah, I love you guys. How you been? Good? It's kind of it's hard because in my mind, I still see the church with all the people still in it, right, you know? And, and yet we've got this uh, contingency of staff and people kind of working, kind of carrying us through. And the reality is I, I got to see what's here and then see what's out there and realize every week there's, there's been amazing numbers. I mean, God has really been blessing the church and and through it all, um, I got to be honest with you, when I sit back there on Sunday, even though there might only be a small portion of, of what's available in the building, my heart still sees all of you. Like my mind, I still see all of you. And so Pastor Eric gets to sit back there today and go online and talk to people in the chat and do all the stuff that I do. And he gets to get in my mindset, which a lot of the times it's just like, I know you're there and I know you're going through it. So people in Texas, you know, Pearl and San Diego, people that are home with COVID this week, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, just know the church is with you guys. I mean, we are, we are, we've never been more together than we are now. If there's one thing that adversity teaches us all is we really find out who we are in adversity, right? It's easy to be at church when it's a good time and, and there's confetti flying and everything's happy. It's another thing to, to be the church during a really difficult time. And so I don't know about you guys, but, uh, I consider myself privileged to be part of this church right now. This is a legacy church. I mean, in America, legacy is like, we're not, we don't have that much legacy here. Go to Israel, you see something four or 5,000 years old, right? You go to California, you see something 40 years old, and you're like, wow, that's old, you know? But this is a legacy church, and since 1948, 1949, it's been here. And so thank you guys for being part of it. Thank you for being here this morning. And I'm really excited with you, as always. Um, it's been a restful week and a lot of entertaining stuff, which usually happens when it's my week. So all that to be said is I get to share with you today the first miracle of God. First miracle of God's son, Jesus, when he turns water into wine. We're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 today. And I don't know about you, but if you haven't been here the last few weeks, I have to do some recounting because doing a book study in the book of John isn't just like any other book study. 
Matter of fact, doing a book study in John is one of the most important book studies you could ever do. So let me pray, and then I'm going to explain to you why the Gospel of John is the most highly recommended first book in the Bible time and time again. Father God, I come before you this morning, and I'm so grateful that we have the opportunity just to be in this building, to, to be here today. There's people home. I know Kelly's home, and, and Tammy's home, and some people are home with COVID today, and they're just and they're right in the middle of the storm, Father. I know the blitzes are out there, and they're right in the middle of the storm, Father. But a couple of weeks ago, there was 10 or 15 people down with it, and they've all pulled through. So just be with anyone who's out there today who's not feeling 100%. Be with someone who's got those mental issues. Father, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt there are mental issues and spiritual issues, and there's all kinds of things trying to tear people down. I pray today, Father, that this book study in John wouldn't just be a mild source of encouragement, that it would be the continuum of encouragement for the beginning of this year to get people's minds right, to get people's hearts right, to do as John did, to focus on the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing. If you can do that, Father, then regardless of the storm or the weather or anything else that happens around you, you will be anchored to the rock and you will be focused. There is only one cause, the death, burial, and resurrection in Jesus Christ gives us new life. May we stay focused in that today. We do it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So often as is a question when people say, I'm kind of new to the Bible or I've kind of been in the Bible a while. Um, what's the best book of the Bible to read? And for generations and generations, the book of John has always been the most recommended book. Now, the book of John is part of what we call the synoptic gospels or the gospels. But where Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of share a similar story, they all kind of start with the miraculous birth of Christ, John kind of has the fullness of the picture. I like to think of it like this. If you were to, back in the days when you had weddings, um, you set cameras out at the tables, right? Now, I got this from Pastor Tom at High Desert 20 years ago. So, but if you have cameras at the, at the table, even though the wedding is one event, depending on the table, people are going to take pictures of what's important to them, Right? Now, we have a couple of camera people in the church, uh, Arpid, um, Leslie, Teresa, Jeannie. We got some people that are camera people. So camera people might stage all the pictures, right? And then other people are just like Pastor Eric. They're a free spirit, and they're going to take pictures of, of whatever happens, the man in the red velvet suit, right? They're going to take pictures of, of whatever makes sense to them. And then we got guys like John, who, uh, Matthew is at the book, and Matthew's going to take pictures of anything that's Jewish. I always like to think of that Matthew... Jew, Matthew, Jew. So when you're studying the book of Matthew, look for the Jewish content, right? Mark, on the other hand, they believe that Mark was kind of the primary do document. When we call them the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they share stories. So always think of like X marks the spot, right? X marks the spot. Mark, he's talking to the Romans. So everything that's Roman, like Roman numeral X, everything that Mark's taking pictures of will speak to them. And, and Luke, he's the doctor. He's going to be speaking to the Greeks, right? He's going to be identifying with things that will make sense to them. But John, he's talking to us. John's talking to me. He's talking to you. He's talking to Gentiles. And that's why when you read the opening line of John, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's mind blowing, right? It's like, what does that sound like? Sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? So John is taking the time to realize that why we recommend this book is it's the fullness. It's like whoever took the pictures didn't just take pictures from one point of the wedding, but documented the whole thing, the behind the scenes, right? The getting ready for the wedding, the wedding itself, the pre-party, the post-party, and everything. And so John is just an amazing gospel, and I'm so grateful that we can be part of it. 
Because of that, I find it very interesting. The first two messages that Pastor Eric gave, the first chapter of gone, first gone, I'm gone. The first chapter of John actually reads more like a grand jury testimony. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever been part of a grand jury? I'm going to show you my little piece of paper from 2007, and I know the camera won't focus on that. That is a certificate of completion from a grand jury. Now, you've all done jury duty, right? Jury duty, we all kind of know what that is. See, a grand jury is quite different than a jury duty. What a grand jury does is they decide whether or not there's enough information presented to go to court, right? And a grand jury doesn't start and stop in two hours or three hours or four hours. The grand jury, you will sit inside of that room for as long as it takes for those attorneys to convince you that something happened and should be done about it or nothing happened and it should be dismissed. Then if they can convince you as a grand jury, it then goes to a jury, jury trial, and then they tell you whether there's what the verdict is. I love that because although I did this many years ago and wasted what I considered three or four days of my life, which they promised me pay for, they never did pay. The one thing I learned in that is if you want to convince a court, if you want to convince a jury, you have to give overwhelming testimonies and evidences, right? Everything that you're, it doesn't matter what you say as an attorney, what matters is what you can prove. And the evidence and the testimonies that you give substantiate your case. So look at John, look what John does in the opening thing. He starts off with these independent testimonies of who? Himself. He starts off by saying, um, I am John, I'm not just anyone, I'm John the Beloved. That's his name, John the Beloved. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm not only going to pay attention to what's going on, but I'm, when there's a lot of fish caught, I'm going to count the fish. You know, in all four of the Gospels, the account of the uh, throw the net over after fishing all night, we didn't catch anything, and then they, hey, throw it on the other side, and the guys are like, what? Throw it on the other side, and they catch so many fish that the boats almost sink, and they get it. John counts the fish. 153. You say, Pastor Jeff, why would you know that? I count fish all the time. I measure fish, I count fish, I weigh fish, right? That is a detail that tells us something about the testimony of John. John's going to be detailed and nuanced based as he goes through this. He's not giving you some generalized information. He's going to find the details and signs that he believe are absolutely significant. And he's going to tell you why, because you're the grand jury. And he wants to tell you so that you can be informed so that what? At the end of his 21 chapters, you can make a decision. Is he the Messiah? Is he not? So chapter 1, let's see, chapter 1, 1 through 18, that's John's testimony. Those opening verses are what John thinks, what John has seen, what John believes, what John knows to be true. I am not the light. He is the light, right? He, he's reflecting the light. And everything that John tells you is leading up to something. What's that? The next guy, 19 through 37, John the Baptist. Okay, there's two Johns in there, a little bit confusing. If you weren't paying attention the first two weeks, you may have to go rewatch. But the second set of testimonies, eyewitness, is John the Baptist. Who's John the Baptist? The greatest evangelist that's ever lived. You have the beloved disciple, the one who's saying, I'm the beloved, I'm the most beloved disciple. And then he's cornerstone and he's like bookending his testimony with the evangelist of evangelists, the one who is who? The voice in the wilderness crying out. What does John the Baptist say about it? John the Baptist says, I am not the light. Matter of fact, when he who is coming comes, I won't even be fit to tie his shoes. Well, he doesn't have shoes. He has sandals, right? 
And back then they had sandals that kind of laced up in the back. I won't even be fit to bend down and tie that man's shoe. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. And you have to be something that only this man can do. And what is it? Transformed. Transformed. That's going to be a key word throughout this whole passage. Transformed. Because John the Baptist, he had followers. He had 2,000 likes on his Instagram post. He had followers. But you know what? I'm a follower of the Dodgers. Does that make me a Dodger? A lot of us make the mistake that because we follow Jesus or we know Jesus, that we're with Jesus. The demons know who Jesus is, right? You could be a follower of something and not have anything to do with it. The word follower and the word disciple, the big difference is intimacy. A disciple is someone who's invited Christ in, someone who's made a decision, a profession of faith, and decided him in, a devotee. Jesus doesn't want followers. John the Baptist doesn't want followers. Matter of fact, when the followers of John the Baptist finally see Jesus, what does he do? He points and he says, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? His testimony is, okay, I'm done with mine. That's where you need to go. Go be a devotee of his. Follow him. Be transformed by him. If you follow me the rest of your life, it will not be enough. I think that's so awesome. The last few chapters, verses 1, 38 through 51, it's Jesus' calling of the disciples, right? He doesn't just call the disciples. He kind of meets with them intimately and gives them these initial little insights to who he is and what he does. And each one of them responds, Philip, Nathaniel, whoever it is, like, oh my gosh, you must be the Messiah. You know things that no one else knows. You must be the Messiah, so he finishes chapter 1 and verse 50 by saying, greater things will come. Greater things will come. You're going to see heaven coming down. You're going to see angels coming down. You're going to see greater things. And that is why when you start with what I get to read, chapter 2, you get to be pretty excited. Because chapter 2 starts with the actual signs. So where you open to the grand jury with the testimonies, now you naturally follow with the signs. And I say signs specifically in your homeward notes. That's going to be one of your questions. Why does John call them signs and not miracles? It's very specific. He believes that the signs that he recorded, he records seven or eight, depending on who you are. It's less than 10, right? He records the signs because he believes each sign says something about Jesus. So it's all very specific. It's not a miracle. It's not some random act of something that's a miraculous singular event. It is a specific wonder of God for a reason. So with that in mind, let me read John 2, 1 through 11. And then we're going to do one other quick reading and uh, drink some water. Here we go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited into the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to them, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they are filled to the very brim. 
Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best till now. Verse 11, And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, since I kind of mentioned the idea of a grand jury, one of the things that will happen in the grand jury is along with the opening statements that the attorney makes, at some point he has to actually say what it is that he's trying to prove, right? And so before I go forward and actually tear this whole thing apart and try to share with you what I think John's trying to prove, let me ask you to do one bonus turn. Can you turn to John 20? John 20, 29 through 31. You've got to jump a little bit forward because this is the answer to what he's trying to prove with his, with his testimonies and his signs and everything. John has something very specifically he's trying to prove. So rather than me saying it, let's just read it. Verse 29, John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written down in the book. Remember, John is the one writing the book. He's only going to write about seven or eight of them down. But he's telling you many other things were performed, not as significant. The ones I'm writing are significant. But why did he write these? The very answer right there, verse 31, on your homework question why is all this happening? Why is John doing this? These are written so that you may believe in Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Those two reasons cornerstone everything that John says and everything that John does. Why is John the most important book in the Gospels? Why is John the first book that we send someone to? Because in John's Gospel, he focuses on the faith of someone going from not believing to believing, from being emptied to being full, from being a heart of stone to a heart of life. I love the fact that in John 17, he even says this, this is eternal life that you may know the only true God that you may know the only true God. That word know is not kenosis, know here, but it's the intimacy of a relationship. Remember before I said, Jesus doesn't want followers. John didn't want followers. He wants people who know him, people that have been transformed by him, people that have invited him in to discipleship, to be a devotee of his. And that's what John is confirming. It's not just knowing. It's not just following it's the intimacy of the relationship of inviting Jesus in so that these signs in chapter two, the first one that I'm going to do water to wine In chapter four, a dying man's son is healed. What is that a sign of? He has a sign over death and life. In chapter five, a paralyzed man, he can heal the sick. Chapter six, he feeds the multitude. It doesn't matter what you have. You bring it to him and he can feed the multitude from it walking on water, even the elements answer to who he is. Sight to the blind in 11. Blind, seeing, transformation, raise the dead again, dead to life. And ultimately in 21, 
he feeds his disciples on the beach from nothing something, right? Ex nihilo, you know from the beginning, from nothing God created. From Latin, ex nihilo, from nothing God created. Jesus has the power over everything. And in each one of these signs, what he wants you to realize is it's specific and it's wonderful, but it tells you something. And this first one tells you so, so much. Now, it starts off with a little phrase there on the third day. I'm not going to run into that right now. I'm going to save that for a bonus thought at the end because it's just a bonus thought. So we'll talk about it in the third day Jesus arrives. We'll talk about that at the end. But let's focus on this, a wedding. Many of you have been to weddings. I'm a pastor. I've been to many, many weddings. I've been to weddings and I've been in weddings. And regardless of that, our weddings are Friday night at 7 o'clock and done by Friday night at 9.30 or Saturday at 10 and then done by 1.30. And we all try to plan our day for two or three hours of the wedding event and whatever. Sure, the bride and groom might have events the night before, but plus or minus, it's like a weekend experience. That's not the way weddings worked back here. 2,000 years ago, a wedding was, especially in a small little city like Cana, this little mountainside hill, it'd be like Big Bear. It's a small little nothing town. A wedding would be like the event of the century. It would be the thing to do. And everyone from all points of the little city would know when the wedding was and what was taking place. So when they run out of wine, if it is in fact on the third day, that's halfway through, okay? If it's, a, if it's a week-long endeavor and they're halfway through, that's a problem. Matter of fact, it's not just a problem like today, it's a problem. It's a problem legally back then. Running out of the wine legally back then could get you into actual trouble with the invited people that you have at the event. Additionally, there's the shame that goes with it. There's a shame that goes with it because this is your first time publicly to say, I can provide for my wife. I can provide for my spouse. I can provide for my extended family. This is your first opportunity to do so. And you running out in your first event would say, you are not prepared, right? That's a big, big problem. So one of the first things that you notice in this thing is running out of wine. It's going to be a big problem. And whether or not we know how exactly Jesus' mom's involved, she's involved. To me, it feels like she's one of the hosts, like she's way involved. And so the fact that Jesus and his family is invited is kind of interesting. From Cana to Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, is about plus or minus eight miles, which means without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus' family, his actual family family, besides the people from Cana, are there at the event. This isn't just going to be embarrassing for somebody. This is going to be embarrassing for his family. His mom is actually involved with the event, and Jesus knows that. And Mary says, hey, look, running out of wine might be a problem for some, but running out of wine for me is going to be a huge problem because I'm involved. They know that I'm involved. So what am I going to do? I'm going to turn to the person who can help me. I'm going to turn to the person that I think might actually have a little insight. How does she know that Jesus has insight? Well, go back to her birth with him, right? It helps to know that you didn't do anything, and then one day you woke up and something had happened, right? Mary knows intimately from the time Jesus was born until this very time that he has been born for a reason. Remember back in the temple when they couldn't find him when he's about 12 years old? What are you doing? I'm doing my father. She's been seeing all the different signs, and at this very moment, she realizes maybe this is what it's all about. Maybe I need to go from knowing who he is 
to asking him to intercede. Guys, this is a crucial part of this miracle. Knowing who Jesus is and asking Jesus to intercede is completely different. A lot of us have head knowledge of Jesus. A lot of us have head knowledge of religion. But asking Jesus to intercede means you have to put yourself out there and say, you know what, I'm empty. I'm out. I mean, I've been involved with a lot of weddings, and weddings run out of stuff on a regular basis. Flowers, music, chicken terracotta, whatever, Parmesan food. I'm, weddings run out of stuff, right? Is, is that the focus of this? Is the, the wedding? Is running, no. It's way more significant than that. What Jesus is saying is, for the rest of your time here and for the rest of your understanding, running out will be part of the situation. But when you run out, who do you turn to? Well, I, most, I like most of you, I turn to Visa. That's who I turn to, and I, I go to Costco, and I get more stuff, right? And that's, we're very dependent on ourselves to fill that void of when we, when we run out. And Jesus is saying from this first miracle, you're going to be running out for a long time, and when you do, I want you to consider one thing. When you run out, I am the only person that can actually fill that void. What void? Jeremiah 3, 11. God has placed eternity on man's heart. Every single person listening, man, woman, and child, every single person will have to realize you're going to run out of something. Today, you might run out of, of, of excitement for living. I mean, a lot of people right now are, are suicidal. Let, let me be honest with you guys. Counseling in the last six months has been exponential because the, their hope is depleted. And I want to tell you something. This first miracle speaks directly to you, and it tells you this. Whatever you're out of this morning, take what you're out of, go to the feet of Jesus, and like Mary, ask Jesus to intercede because his specialty is transformation, right? He doesn't just want followers. He wants an intimate relationship with you where you, you know him. You know him. You've asked him in, and she does it. Unfortunately, when we read it, there's an interesting kind of conversation because in verse 4, he responds, is it my time yet? You know, woman, is it my time yet? And I had a couple of people, even when I was reading it, that is he like, you know, being harsh with his mom? No, this is just language of 2,000 years ago. And as you actually read the account of Jesus, like at least three other times he uses the same phrase, woman, and different things. He's simply saying, I'm responding to my father, Okay. When my father says go, I go. When my father says stop, I stop. My will is to fulfill the father's will. So here's the concern I have, is you coming in and telling me the wine's running out. You don't think I would have found out the wine was running out? Right? And you're my mom. Like, I want to take care of you, but my job is to make sure, is this the father's will? I'm willing I know he's able, but I need to make sure this is the Father's will. And so that conversation is more about Jesus saying, hey, look, when I do this, things are going to change. In this first miracle, whoever witnesses this, the disciples, the family members, the servants, whatever this group of people that witnesses, it's going to change. It's going to initiate my first phase of public ministry. And so I need to make sure, is this the Father's will? It's not harsh. It's not disrespectful. It's something he's done before and will continue to do it. So Mary says to them, here's the situation, guys. If I know anything, I know one thing. Whatever he says to do, do exactly what he says. Now, I don't know about you, but in most of the weddings I've been involved with, I'm the servant. 
right? The family members are the one behind the scene that are kind of taking care of this. Now, 2,000 years ago, they had servants. Maybe there were some other people doing it, but I can't help but think that Jesus' brothers and sisters and other people are involved with this. And when Mary says to them, do whatever he says, it's not subject to interpretation. It's not subject to interpretation. Because a lot of you are going to hear Jesus say something to you at some point in your life. Because remember, this is an appeal by John to the grand jury to say, hey, is he a liar, is he a lunatic, or is he a Lord? Is Jesus Christ the Messiah? Because is he, if he is, you have to make a decision about him. And when you hear him speak to you, the situation is not, let me think about that, let me figure that out, or let me go get counsel from someone who's more godly than I am. When he speaks to you, and you know it's him speaking from the words of his mother, do exactly what he says. I would just add in that right away. Right? You know, the one thing about coming to faith, the one thing I've been experiencing with faith is that the longer you wait, the more excuses you develop, the more calloused your heart becomes, the more your heart of stone, it, the easier it is to resist, right? Do it right away. The first time you hear Jesus call you and say, I am the Messiah. I have come for you. And I know you've run out, but I'm the one that can transform your empty jar into something amazing. Isn't that exciting? 20 to 30 gallon jars need to be filled up. And they're not just any jars. They're stone mason jars, specific jars, probably relative to where they are in the kitchen and what they see. These are the cleansing jars. This is part of the Old Testament cleansing. You have to wash your hands, wash your feet in, in preparation to be clean. So it's something for the Jewish Matthews audience that would really love because they would identify right away with those stone cleansing jars. And he says, go fill them up. And he says, fill them all the way up. Now, I don't know about you, but can you imagine the conversation? 120 to 180 gallons of water have to be drawn. Have you ever been to a well before? Any of you had the pleasure of going to a well? To draw like one gallon of water out of it, it's not, this is not a fast event. One thing about scripture, sometimes we read it and we lose the nuances that are going on behind the scene, Right? It's taken some people, like some husbands and some brothers and sisters, it's taken some people some time to put this stuff together. Bucket, 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 jar, jar, what are we doing? We need, we're out of wine, we got water, how is this going to help? The conversations are flying between this group of people. The servants are, are thinking, this guy's in big trouble, and the family members are thinking, what, why is he filling in water? with? We don't need to clean. We're already clean. We're in the partying mode right now. We need wine. That's what we need. Who's going? Where's the Costco run? What's happening here? And when he brings those jars back, they didn't just fill them partially because it took a lot of time. They didn't even fill them three-quarter because it would just speed up the process. He said, fill them to the what? The brim, right? Remember the old coffee commercial? Fill it to the rim, the brim. No, you guys, now we just... Fill it to the rim. Man, here's what John 10.10 says about that. The thief comes to steal, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the what? Partial? Three-quarter? To the full. 
This is what's so cool about John's book. Everything is intertwined. Like there's a thread running from the very beginning of the book to the very end so that you won't get lost. The more time you spend in John, the more time you will see the thread. It's all connected because he wants you to understand something. This is who the Messiah is. He doesn't need a partial jar. He doesn't need a three-quarter jar. He just needs what you have. Another component to this that's so key is you bring what you have. What did they have? Stone jars that were empty. Okay, that's what you have. Bring it to Jesus and say, this is what I have. He says, cool, go fill them to the very brim and bring them back. It took some time. There's some crazy conversations. They bring them back, and what does he say? Dip your hands and see what's going to happen. You know, the outside of the jar, I'm pretty convinced because it doesn't say, were the outside of the jars changed? No. So the stone jar was still a stone jar afterwards. So that's not part of the miracle. So what's the miracle? What's the sign? What's the wonder? That Jesus has the ability to take something from one state to another, right? They would have known what water was for. The the cleansing part, they knew that is cleansing. But Jesus is actually metaphorically speaking saying, just like this is wine, my blood, my life one day you will understand is cleansing you, is giving you something that you don't have that will transform you from this to this forever. I will wash you one time with a cleansing water that you don't know of. Remember the woman at the well? That's coming up. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You know, what kind of water is this that perpetually, it's a different, it's different, it's transformed, it's nothing that we know. It's something different. And because it's changed, think about how that says, spiritually speaking, is this vessel on the outside changed during the next 60 or 70 years of our lives? No, just like a stone jar, it weathers and it breaks down. But is what inside of us changed when we come to Jesus like Mary and say, help, I am empty? Yes, it is just like the first miracle, it is it is transformed into something new, something that makes no sense to us. The soul does live on forever. Eternity has been placed on your heart, and Jesus now fills that emptiness, that heart of stone, and that's kind of a cool little metaphor, right? The heart of stone with what? A heart of life. It's not just the first miracle, guys. It's the only miracle. If you haven't been transformed by Jesus, if your heart of stone has not been transformed by Jesus, then you don't need to worry about any of the other things that he's done or said. That's why John says there's been volumes of other stuff that's been written, and none of it matters until you're transformed, until you come from darkness into light, until you know that he is the light, nothing can happen. Salvation may happen on the inside, but for the believer, you know. Why? Because when that guy dips his hand, the master of ceremonies, when he dips his hand in that, he knows what wine is. And by the way, this whole thing with wine, uh, you know, I come from Southern Baptist roots and many different times in my life I've had people try to square me and say, Pastor Jeff, is wine evil? Why would Jesus' first miracle be associated in any way, shape, or form with anything that's inherently or partially or even potentially evil It tells you something about wine. First of all, wine 2,000 years ago was completely different than wine today. Probably just like one-step patch Welch's grape juice. It was very, very low by volume alcohol. Okay? Secondly, a thing about wine, according to 2,000 years ago, Paul tells Timothy that a little wine is what? 
good for him because the water wasn't actually that good. So a little wine was actually, speaking, was good for you. Jesus never said, don't drink wine. Jesus said, don't be drunk. Don't use it in abuse. So think about it. Since it was such less volume, you would have had to drink quite a bit more to get out of control. This miracle is not about wine. Please, all you wine drinkers, people in the church, don't try to take this and make this about whatever. And if you're an AA, don't try to use this as your cornerstone for wine. And That's not what the miracle is about. It's about transformation. It's not about the actual water or the wine. It's about something that was one thing became something it wasn't ever meant to be because of the power of the risen Lord. Right? That's what he does for me and you. The first miracle says Jesus is coming out to the world and I have power over the elements and I'm making something new out of something that was old. So tell all your old wineskins and all everything else, it's not going to work. It can't contain what I'm about to do. And it may start right here in this small little town of Cana, and it may start with an individual from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Yeah, something from this little teeny slice of nothing is going to come. And think about it, 2,000 years later, who's the one name above all names that still causes all the insurrection, all the fighting and fussing about whatever? There's only one name that's been spoken all these years that still households are separated, right? Families are broken. Like, we didn't come to Jesus because it was easy. Did you forget that? Jesus said to follow me, to be a devotee of mine. You don't come because it's easy. I'm sorry that the situation that we're living in right now is not easy, but that's not why we came to him. We came to him because we were empty. And he transformed us into something different. So the outside of the jar may weather and deteriorate, but the inside is renewed and the inside will live forever. And the inside is destined to be with his maker. Another thing about the miracle that people forget is even though everybody drank wine and everybody enjoyed it, did everybody know? No. Who really knew that first sign was for them? Who really knew what that first sign was specifically for? Go back to the passage, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed, right? It's always been for the disciples. It's not just for the followers. It's not just for the people that are around. A lot of people will be around when wonderful and miraculous things happen, but only the people that poured the water, the servants. I guarantee you there was some amazing conversation with the servants, right? If you poured, if you poured the water, if you, if you did, and then all of a sudden you saw what it was, no one can tell you different, right? You knew what it was, and you know what it is. Now, verdict. You have to make a decision, jury, with what you've seen. I love that because Jesus comes to the servants first, right? He comes to the workers first. He comes to his disciples and the servants first because he knows if you want to make a difference, make a difference to the people that need it the most. Jesus shows up today in Costa Mesa or in your hometown Where's he going to go first? To the church? No, to the hospital, to the, to the AA meeting, right? He's going to go where people are hurting and have the greatest need because they're so empty, all they can bring is what they have to the person that can fill it. 
with something they need. The key to this account is Mary realizing, I know what Jesus is. I know who he is, but that's not enough. I must ask him to intercede. If you're listening to this today and you know who Jesus is and you have an idea of what he can do, but you have not asked Jesus to intercede, then nothing, this whole passage, the entire book, will do nothing for you except for just remind you that Jesus, like many people believe, was another good guy, was another good prophet, was another person who did good things. And guys, the world's full of people that have done good things. But what John is saying is that's not who he is. He is the Lamb of God. He is the light of light. He is the King of kings. Make a decision about it. I told you in the beginning that third day, Jesus arrived on the third day. One thing that's interesting, like, so when you go to seminary and you learn to use commentaries and all these other things, people find nuances in any account of the Bible and then they'll write like giant trilogies on it. There was all kinds of different things on this, but I did find it interesting. Because John is so detail-oriented, and maybe it was the third day of the wedding, but maybe it was like one of those little Easter eggs. Remember back in the day when you could play a game and you'd find like an egg, like something hidden in there you didn't know? Maybe the little hidden part in here for the believer is the third day. Right? The opening of the passage is on the third day. Because this initial account is Jesus is coming out to who? The few. You saw it. You saw it. You saw it. I called you. You saw it. What are you going to do? It says they believed. The few. But what is Jesus going to do when he ultimately hangs on the cross? John, go back to John. John three sixteen. For God so loved the who? The world. He's going to let everyone see. <clears throat> At some point of his miracles and his signs and his wonders, it's like it's very detailed. It's very specific. He wants to reach out to me and you and meet us where we are. But at some point, he finally just says to everyone, they can kill me. They can take my life, but they can't stop what my father has commissioned me to do. I am the light of the world. And if you place your hope and your faith in me, I will fill that void from Jeremiah 3, that black hole, that void that is in your heart that needs to be placed by something. If you want to know what life is all about, you can only find that in me. Bring what you have to me and set it down and ask me to intercede. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will make you new. And you can say goodbye to the old ceremonial ways of cleansing. What's the result? That a heart of stone becomes a heart of life. Now, we all know that the heart is proverbially wicked. So what can change something so wicked? Only Jesus. Only asking him to intimately be involved in our life can change that. Why? Because we're going to need strength to be a follower of Christ. Look at uh, today, some of the conversations I've had is the church needs to be prepared for this and the church needs to be prepared for this and believers should watch out for this. I have news for all of you. It's going to get worse, much worse. You should learn to bask in the glory that is right now. This is probably easy compared to what it's going to be like. In the countries where it costs you your life to be a believer, and there are places like that, guys, in the world today, that it, it will cost you your life to profess Jesus. In those places, Iran, North Korea, it has been reported through the Christian community, that in those places, evangelism grows exponentially faster than it does anywhere else. Why? 
Why, and why is it people are sending evangelists now to the United States? Because we are no longer one nation under God. We have walked away from the basics. Like the, the Church of Philadelphia, we've lost our first love. This first miracle is so great because it tells us, stay connected to your first love. Remind yourself of how empty you were before you met Jesus. And remind yourself that no matter what the scoreboard says, Jesus wins. And if he said it will be done, it will be done. And if it's going to get worse, then you've still got a job to do. What is your job? John said, so that those who've seen believe that option is no longer here. Now it's those who haven't been able to see but still believe. To make old wineskins hold this new wine that's getting ready to flow. That Jesus himself is the only person who can transform. I am making everything new. I know that you're empty. I know that you're out. I know that you have resources, but they will all end in the same result. There's only one way. There's only one truth. And there's only one life. His name is Jesus. And I'm sorry if that's hard for you to hear, but I'm excited for you if you realize it is what you need to hear. Because in him, all our hope hangs. In him, all eternity hangs. In him, every breath that we take is a gift. Today is a gift, guys. Whatever your attitude was or isn't or could be, today is a gift. The next breath you take is a gift. Make sure you use that for one reason and one reason only. To go, to make, to teach, and to baptize. That is the bottom line of what we're here to do. If we can keep that main thing the main thing, then no matter what happens, this first miracle that Jesus performed sets precedent for everything else that will happen. Jesus can take what we have and make it enough. It's okay to be empty. It's okay to not be enough. Jesus is enough and has more and more and abundance to flow. From five loaves of bread, he fed how many? 5,000. He's not a God of a little or a few or micro. He's the God of eternity. He's the God of plenty. Come to him with your problems. He wants to hear. As I get ready to pray, I'm going to invite the band back up. I want you to make sure you take some time to read this book. Read, if you need to reread chapter one again because you weren't really too clear on what was happening, reread it. Rewatch the first sermons online. And realize that you are being privileged to study this book of John. Do it in such a way that you realize this is the single greatest treasure. We can give people a lot of different books out of the Bible to read. But when we give them the book of John, we are giving the fullness of the gospel that has the opportunity to put them into salvation, into a hope and faith that is Christ. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for what has been this incredible journey. And just this first miracle. And as we have the opportunity in the next few days, weeks, and months to study these upcoming books, I can only think about the excitement that my heart has. That If we, like a grand jury, are sitting before people and, and hearing the actual testimonies and witness and the accounts and the proof that Jesus is who he said he is, then 21 chapters later, we have this amazing opportunity to be on our knees, to be in front of the King of Kings, and make a decision, make a profession of faith. Is Jesus Christ Lord and Savior? Because if he is and we don't make a decision, then it will be the single greatest mistake that we've ever made. We can make a lot of mistakes in our life, but only one mistake has eternity in the balance. 
I pray that for anyone watching this, for anyone hearing this, whenever this gets to them, that they would realize that there is hope in no other name. He can turn fishermen into fishers of men. He specializes in transformation. Let Jesus transform your heart of stone today. We do it all and say it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Stop.
Glory 
morning, even if it's just over uh, the YouTube feed. And I just have to confess, uh, Cheryl, you made a comment that my, my little comments keep disappearing, and that's because I'm immature. And whenever I'm not up here, I'm in back and my mind is going a million miles a minute. And so when Jeff says something like they're serving chicken terracotta, I'm like, no, it's panna cotta. Chicken terracotta sounds like it would taste pretty earthy, right? So that's on me. I'm the one who's censoring myself. But even that starts getting me thinking, because this whole time that Jeff has been teaching, I've been thinking about those, those stone jars and how something that was intended for religious purposes, for cleansing, were completely renewed for a brand new purpose. Jesus filled them and used them, used something that probably felt like dead, empty religion, and he used them for celebration. It makes me think about something else that is intended for God's worship, and that's us. Because we are clay jars that God has filled with the hope that we found in Jesus Christ. And he says, all this hope that you found is contained in these clay jars because the jars aren't about themselves. And quite honestly, I'll be the first to say, far too often we make it about ourselves. We make it about, how do people see me? Are people entertained? Are people attracted to me? At the end of the day, it's not about us. It's never been about us. And Jesus says, would you let me fill you up with my spirit so that you can radiate the hope that you have found into this world that's hurting, not to draw attention to yourself, but so that others would come to know me and so that they can celebrate, so they can taste and see how good I am. And ultimately that we can all be together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's so much there, um, but I'm just so grateful for this reminder that God uses imperfect, easily distracted clay vessels like us to pour out his perfect love in this world. And guys, our world needs us. So may we be those vessels 
that God uses this week as you leave here. May he breathe new life even into the way that you approach him, into your prayer time, into your interaction time, even maybe the ways that you go on social media. we, We talk about communion. And that's one of those things that has become stale and old in many ways. I mean, quite honestly, that that piece of paper that we hand you that is supposedly a cracker, right? And the juice that's cloyingly sweet. But that's not the heart of it at all. That that communion was a, a, a declaration of that in Christ, we are one, we're family. So maybe today you breathe new life into old religious stuff. And you have a communion feast with your family where you just gather around the table, make your lunch or make your dinner communion where you celebrate that in Christ we get to be family. Maybe if you can figure out a way to safely do it, gather with somebody else that's not a part of your immediate family with the reminder that in Christ we are family, that we're one in him. Let's not just give in to empty religion. Now, to those of you who call Lighthouse home, I have just one thing to remind you, one bit of business. And that is earlier this week on Wednesday, Jeff and I emailed out to you our budget and our elder nominees. In a, it, was a, it was an email that we sent along with uh, a video that we recorded. I would ask that you find that if you have not yet done so. Watch the 30-minute video and then respond back to us because we need your answers in terms of whether you support the budget and you support the elder nominees by the end of today. Other than that, Lighthouse community, we are so grateful to be on this journey. If you have prayer requests, please email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If you want to give, you can do so at lighthousecommunity.com. We have a, a link right there on our website. And now go, be those jars of clay that don't draw attention to yourself, but pour out the perfect love that your Father God has poured into your heart through his Holy Spirit. Go be the church. Have a wonderful week. The God who was and is to come. The power of the risen one. The God who brings the dead to life. You're the God of